Welcome to the Ready to Run podcast. I'm your host, Efren Kabalias, DO, sports medicine physician based out of the Boulder, Colorado area. And I'm your host, Kurt Roser, doctor of physical therapy, also based in the Boulder area. The goal of our podcast is to engage in thoughtful discussions with athletes, coaches, clinicians, and researchers to share knowledge within the field of sports medicine and inspire progression in the sport of running. We hope to empower individuals to navigate injuries, reduce injury risk, optimize training and performance, and provide listeners with the tools needed to get ready to run. You'll be able to listen to us on Apple iTunes and other podcast formats. You can also follow us on Instagram at ReadyToRunPodcast. In today's episode of the Ready to Run Podcast, we'll have a discussion on relative energy deficiency in sport, otherwise known as RED-S, with Jake Riley and Maddie Alm. Maddie is a registered dietitian and founder of Fueling Forward Sports Nutrition. Maddie has a master's in nutritional science from San Diego State and completed her training as a registered dietitian at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. She also competed at the University of Colorado in Boulder and currently runs professionally for Team Boss. She has been a guest on the Sandy Boy Network on Lindsay Hines' show, I'll Have Another, as part of her nutrition series. Definitely check out her previous episodes if you haven't already as she has a great discussion on red ass and iron deficiency. Jake is an American professional long-distance runner and 2020 Olympic marathoner. He currently lives in Boulder, Colorado, and is coached by three-time Olympic marathoner Lee Troop. Jake grew up in Bellingham, Washington, and was an eight-time All-American at Stanford, and previously ran with the Hansons. Jake had one of the most memorable performances and comeback stories at the 2020 Olympic marathon trials in Atlanta, where he grabbed an American flag with about 400 meters to go and ran to a sprint finish where he took second place in a very closely contested contest. In June 2022, Jake shared his story of being diagnosed with Red S in Runner's World. His story helped to open the door to discussing Red S in the context of male athletes. The term Red S evolved from what was previously described as female athlete triad. In 2014, the IOC published a description of RADAS to include a broader definition of the health and performance consequences, as well as inclusion of both male and female athletes. Identifying an athlete with RADAS is not always straightforward. By sharing an athlete and expert perspective, we hope this episode can provide a unique lens into the challenges, both physical and mental, that go into diagnosing and managing RADAS. We'll also get an update of where Jake is at several months after sharing his diagnosis, as well as Maddie's advice on how athletes can make positive changes that can be long-lasting. Let's get ready to run with Jake Riley and Maddie Alm. All right, well, welcome to the Ready to Run podcast. We're lucky today to have two two very special guests. We have Maddie Alm, registered dietitian and professional runner from Team Boss, and we also have Jake Riley, 2020 Olympic marathon runner and uh, member of Team Boulder Elite. And we have a great topic today that we hope is both informative and helpful for our audience, and that is to talk about relative energy deficiency in sport, otherwise known as RED-S. And specifically, we're going to focus on RED-S in males today. So we'll start the show that we, we start every show and ask, uh, what gets you both ready to run? And we'll start with Maddie. All right. I always, of course, fuel before I run, and my go-to um, is usually something like toast with butter and jam or peanut butter and honey. I'll have some electrolytes and some coffee, then I'll do all my activation exercises, make sure I'm warmed up and ready to go, 
and then I'll head out the door for my run. And I usually will relax and kind of do the New York Times crossword or something like that um, just to be in a calm mindset going into my workouts and then make sure I'm not too like fired up for an easy run. So I actually take it nice and easy. <laughs> my process is pretty much identical down to the the peanut butter and honey toast. Um, yeah, a little bit of coffee, try to ease into it, maybe watch like a Netflix show while I'm doing my activation exercises or something. Uh, but if I really need to get fired up, I'll I'll get on Twitter and look at what other people are doing. Um, you know, look at like race results or some recap of somebody doing really well, especially if it's someone that I've beaten because I, I I don't like to see them be successful so that other people think that they're doing better than I am. Like I gotta I gotta you know answer back. Uh, nice, yeah, it uh, definitely seems like a commonality. Like uh, runners, we all seem to like peanut butter, and uh, there's there's got to be something something uh, to that. And then, yeah, I was, uh, I was curious, Jake, like what, uh, is that every, every session that you have to, uh, you get psyched up for or just like key sessions? Um, you know, you got a big workout every, every couple of weeks or something, or is it, you know, literally like every, every, uh, hard effort you're getting psyched up? No, I, I try to deploy it sparingly cause it, I can go overboard really. Like, like Maddie says, you don't need to be fired up to go out and run yeah. seven minute pace on a recovery day. Uh, and I, I have to wean myself off mm-hmm. of it. Because like it's it's really good right now when I'm coming back from injury and I every run kind of sucks and so it's good to kind of get myself psyched up to ready get ready to go. Um, but you know if it's a few weeks before a race or something, I have plenty of pre-race adrenaline going. So to to stack those up, it's going to be bad news. Um, yeah, so yeah I try to be careful. I'll, I'll usually do like a social media blackout, you know, before a race or something like that. But if I need that extra little kick, I'll you know go watch old race videos or something. Yeah, uh, one of my friends was just telling me that um, he's a big Kobe Bryant fan. He I was saying that Kobe would, depending on his like mood, if he was like feeling like he needed to be like amped up before a game or whatever, he would listen to like a certain type of music to like get him pumped up. But if he was already like super nervous, he would listen to some like calming version of music. So I don't know. You figured figured something out that uh, some uh, some successful athletes have have figured out. Yeah, some really angry hip hop will will get the blood flowing. <laughs> get the job if to... not, then maybe like some Patsy Cline or something. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, thank you guys both for being here. I'm really excited to um, yeah learn more about your story, Jake, and and share that with people um, because this is becoming a, a more and more you know like known about, talked about like issue in distance runners where it's kind of I think it's always been an issue and it's always been kind of under the table, um, but now we know more about it and we know it can affect uh, men as well. Um, and so yeah, I'm excited to learn more about it and share that with listeners and um, hopefully you know especially help. Uh, I think younger runners are the, the people that I always think about because I always had you know trouble with um, with uh, fueling and underfueling and overtraining uh, as a young runner especially. So yeah, we're excited to jump into it. Yeah, I guess let's let's start the conversation. Um, just laying out some terminology, uh, Matt. If you can just let us know like what what exactly is red S and um, what is low energy availability. Yeah, so like you said earlier, REDS or RED-S stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. And basically the way I explain it to my athletes, it's kind of like an imbalance. If you think of a scale, on one side you have energy out, on the other side you have energy in. Um, And so if there's a mismatch or if there's too much energy out, not enough back in, your scale is kind of tilted. And so we call that a state of low energy availability. And we really want that scale to be more level. So a lot of times it's putting more fuel in. Sometimes it's also the overtraining piece adds more to that energy outside. So if you have both, obviously you're going to dig yourself into a hole a lot faster. Um, But there's just a variety of different physiological responses that our body has to underfueling. 
Um, and that is really what comprises the syndrome of Red S. And something that was surprising to me is it only takes a couple days of under fueling to start de- developing or showing s- some of these like early symptoms, which is, I think, yeah, something that like a lot of people don't know. It doesn't have to be, you know, months and years of doing something. And also that um, I think we a lot of times stereotype this is to someone that has like disordered eating or, you know, extreme examples, uh, eating disorder, but this is, can be very unintentional and it doesn't have to be like, you know, the extreme end of the spectrum. Like, um, there's just like, uh, yeah, a a lot of like different like layers of where people might fit in that end up with some, um, low energy availability. Yeah, exactly. That's a big comment I get from a lot of athletes when I tell them, I think they may have red S. Um, they're like, well, I don't have an eating disorder, so I don't think that's a problem but you don't have to have an eating disorder or even disordered eating. Um, I see it a lot, especially in younger or newer athletes where they just don't understand how high their needs are. And then they have really busy schedules and lives on top of everything. And so it's just logistically really hard for them to eat enough. So that's probably the most common, actually the most common thing I see with Red S, not even so much the disordered eating or even eating disorder, but that obviously will put you at a much higher risk for Red S as well. Mm. Yeah, simply like a time not enough time in the day to get the yes. the calories in and yeah totally right when people are new to the sport they're they're um not thinking like oh yeah like i'm i'm burning this all these extra calories and i have to you know adjust for that mm-hmm. um yeah what are some of the like early you know signs and and symptoms of red s yeah there's a pretty wide variety actually there's a lot of stuff that falls into that category and i would say it varies a lot from athlete to athlete how they present with red s Um, In my experience, the most common early signs I've seen are actually sleep disturbances. So an athlete who normally has slept really well, all of a sudden they're having a hard time falling asleep or staying asleep or, you know, they're waking up a lot throughout the night, um, even waking up feeling hungry in the middle of the night. Um, And then mood disturbances is a big one too. And I always joke with my teen athletes, that's obviously hard to figure out because you're a teenager and obviously your mood is changing a lot anyway. But I would say relative to how it normally is, if you're finding yourself flying off the handle and you normally don't do that, or you're crying at everything, or you're just kind of snapping at people, feeling irritable overall, um, those are probably the two most common early signs that I see in athletes. As it progresses, it gets more severe and the, uh, I guess the symptoms kind of start to impact running more and more and actually impact sport and performance. Um, So micronutrient deficiencies is a big one that will pop up. So low iron, vitamin D, that kind of stuff. And then when that is discovered, if you don't correct the fueling, you don't respond to the supplementation. So that's another sign. If an athlete has low iron, they start taking a supplement and nothing happens. It's probably more than just not getting enough iron in their diet. Um, difficulty recovering, soreness, like chronic soreness. So if you're sore for more than 24 to 48 hours, that's a big red flag. Um, Any type of, you know, fatigue, chronic fatigue, that kind of stuff, struggling with runs, noticing performance is plateauing or worsening despite having consistent training or feeling like you've been stringing together some good workouts. Um, And then obviously the more extreme cases, you'll have loss of menstrual cycle for women and even ED for men. Um, And so that's a big one where athletes will also tell me, well, I still have my period, so I'm good to go. Or, you know, everything else seems like it's fine, so I don't think that's the problem. But you don't have to reach those extreme symptoms to still have red S. And if anything, catching it in the earlier stages will help prevent it from getting to that point 
where then you have to back off training and kind of adjust a lot of other things to help correct it. Yeah, one of the things I'm hoping we'll touch on is that it seems like a lot of these signs and symptoms you're describing are quite hard to detect, even in the best of us. Um, And those subtleties can can often um, make this this diagnosis and treatment then somewhat challenging. but I guess I want to I want to turn to Jake here, and I guess I want to um, ask like where where does this story start for you? Uh, so I I trained with the Hanson's Distance Project uh, out in Michigan up through 2016, and then I started dealing with some Achilles injuries, and I I left that team, lost the sponsorship, and sort of moved home for a little bit, and I was trying to figure out those those injury problems. Um, eventually decided I'm going to give it one more crack, but I'm going to do it in a place where I can like be going to grad school simultaneously. So I moved out here to Colorado because I knew I could go to CU for grad school and then kind of trained a little bit. Uh, but then training, I got my Achilles, I had surgery on it for a Haglund's deformity. And then I started training and it went really, really well. I did well at Chicago. And so it kind of felt like I got a second chance. Like my my goals in like 2017, 18 was like, maybe I can make the one last Olympic trials. It'll be my swan song. I'll just going to do that. I'll be done. And then I'll go off and, and do a career. And then I was top American at Chicago. And then the conversation for me changed a whole lot. I was like, oh, I might have a shot to make this team. And so going into the 2020 trials, I was like, I'm not going to leave anything on the table. Any any little place where I can potentially get an advantage, I'm going to try and get it. And so one of the things that I had never really done in my career was focus in on diet and trying to be a little bit better about that. Uh, I am a little bit of a bigger runner. Um, I'm not going to throw like numbers out there because I don't think that's constructive, but you know, I tend to be 10, 15, 20 pounds heavier than a lot of the people that I'm training with. Uh, and so I was like, well, that seems, and I've never really focused on calories and trying to tailor it to the, uh, the amount of training or to try and find a race weight. You know, that is a sort of a, an idea that's sort of out there is that there is a race weight that you reach kind of in that last six weeks, two months before your race, you kind of trim down to it. It's like, well, I never try to do that. Let's see what happens. And so I lost about five, six pounds in about a two month period going into the trials uh, and then I made the Olympic team and I raced had like probably the best race of my entire career. It went really, really well. It's like, okay, found the formula. Uh, I would have done the same thing going into the 2020 Olympics, but then COVID happened. So I was in sort of the snowman's land while we went through lockdown and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then coming back in 2021, uh, I did the same thing going into Tokyo. Uh, not as good a result. I guess we can talk a little bit about how I convinced i explained those results away without thinking that it was a a fueling thing they probably also contributed but uh and then came back after tokyo uh went into boston 2022 so this last spring results were even worse like if tokyo was sort of this this slight downslope boston was a a freaking crater i just everything felt terrible uh, and so it was sort of, I think, two months out from Boston was when it finally came to a head. Like, something is wrong here that cannot be explained through normal training variation. Um, let's take a look at this. And that's when I started working with Maddie to try and figure out if there was a, a dietary component. And I think within 20 minutes, it was, oh, this is almost certainly right as. Yeah. And um, I just want to put some context behind your performance at the trials and then Chicago. Um because I had, had like seen you around town and like knew who you were before that, but then when you when you ran two ten thirty and you were top American, I think ninth at Chicago um, in a, a really good year where there was um, I think you know four or five American men that ran great that year. I was like, oh wow, this, that Jake guy's really good. Um, 
and then yeah the trials was an amazing performance like coming in second in and beating that the other guys in that field and like on a tough course running a uh, personal best you know like on that tough course with the wind and then the way that you guys ran that race to like negative splitting just like super impressive um so yeah kind of talking about going from like the highest of highs to you know then having a pretty rough year um but i i wanted to throw some context behind like the 10 or eight years before that because you graduated in 2012 and you're a you know 1330 guy sub 28 10k guy and so you know, really good, like pedigree as a, as a college runner at Stanford. And then, um, you had some injuries, but you also had probably some pretty good periods of like really good training in that amount of time. So for younger listeners, um, I just always want to circle back to like, yeah, losing that five or six pounds, but then also like eight years of like some really good work in there is, you know, that was like a huge factor in that progression. And I'm sure we, we can like, we're going to talk more about this, but like, um, we always like attribute some components of success to things that we do recently. Um, and when I went back and was like looking at your kind of like career, I was like, man, this guy was like really good, like a while ago. And then he just had these, these breakthrough races after like, kind of like putting all these things together. So, um, uh, anyways, I just nerding out reading about you on, on uh, the internet, but <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I don't know, Maddie, do you want to like talk about like when you first, started working with jake and kind of like how where you guys started and like how those conversations went and like what just what you guys started with yeah so it was actually um dr c that reached out and had suggested we work together um because it was kind of what i touched on earlier where he wasn't really responding to iron supplementation and vitamin d supplementation um and we were noticing some low numbers and then on top of that just kind of some really common red s symptoms um, and so when he's kind of walking me through how he's feeling, pretty much instantly, I was like, this is red S 100%. And so I asked if he knew what that was. And he said he wasn't familiar with it. And we kind of I kind of explained it to him. And he was like, well, you know, I don't have an eating disorder. I'm a male athlete. So I really don't think that's what's going on here. <laughs> and that's, again, a really common response from athletes. It's so um, under represented in the male population, which I think is why Jake's story took off so much because most male athletes either never find out that they had it and then deal with the repercussions after they finally stop running years later, um, or they have it and they just don't talk about it or don't realize that's an issue because I think it comes with that stigma of then that means you have an eating disorder or something else is going on. Um, and so, you know, I see that a lot too with athletes who end up with red S there's this kind of performance drive to it. And, it's a really big misconception in our the running community that lighter is faster. And the problem with that, like Jake just illustrated, is that it works temporarily. And that is the hardest part of Red S as a whole, is that initially, yes, you will see a decrease in performance. The problem is at what cost and how long does that last? And typically it doesn't last much more than one season of running. And then the rebound from that, the repercussions from that last much, much longer um, and are much harder to overcome. And so, you know, yes, like he said, the five to six pounds, I think that was a big red flag to me, whereas a lot of runners will hear that and be like, oh, that's awesome. No wonder. Um, but I hear that and I say, OK, if you're running that high of mileage, you're losing, you know, five to six pounds there's definitely some deficit going on here. And then you pair that with the other symptoms he was experiencing. Um, and it seemed pretty apparent to me, but I think it was a good learning opportunity probably for both of us to kind of talk through what was going on. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that we had discussed when I introduced you to was um, we were checking labs, you know, like we do routinely. Um, ferritin and vitamin D were both low. Tried some supplementation was low again, and I'm scratching my head. That's not that's not normal. And I think there were some other things which I don't know if you want to be able to share with us in terms of like sleep and mood, um, things that you were feeling, and basically how it was really tough to differentiate between some medical causes of uh, some of these same things, um, such as thyroid function or or um, other things that we talked about, or like post-Olympic blues, um, which can also look very similar to this. So I don't know if you want to be able to touch on that and what, what you felt and what, what made you like reach out. Yeah. So that was certainly, so my coach Lee Troops, three-time Olympian for Australia, and one thing he warned me about even before we went to the Olympics is that a lot of times you psych yourself up, you have like this long period to train for what for most athletes is the biggest race of their career, and then you finish it and there's sort of malaise sets in. So you'll see a lot of Olympians have this dip in performance post-Olympics. Um, I think it's kind of like, a well, what's next? You know, how do I get excited for this smaller race when I just did, you know, on the biggest stage possible? And so he told me to expect it to be a little bit harder to train after the Olympics. Uh, I was also at the same time, uh, I got the surgery on my Achilles on the right side, but then the left side had started hurting in my prep for the Olympics. And so post-Olympics, it was getting even worse. So right, I was every single run, I was sort of going out and I was having to also deal with pain in the left side. So I was like, well, that's probably some mental fatigue. And, you know, my body's probably not working as efficiently because I'm trying to compensate for this. A lot of my mental energy is going towards that. And, you know, just kind of when I was doing it, I was, it was getting ready for Boston Marathon. So in the middle of a marathon segment, I did expect to be sort of tired and fatigued and, you know, you don't expect every workout to go particularly well. And so, you know, yes, I am tired all the time, but I'm also running 150 mile a week. So I would kind of expect to be tired all the time. And, you know, yeah, I don't feel great and I'm sort of cranky, but also my ankles hurt all the time. So <laughs> that kind of explains that part of it. Um, you know, it's winter training. So I'm already in kind of a crabby mood when it's, you know, 7am and cold and windy out. Mm -hmm. Um, the big thing that prompted the change was I was doing a long run out here at Boulder Res. And so it was a windy, cold day. And I had just had like an okay run uh, where my Achilles had felt okay. And then I started that run and it just was in pain from the beginning. I had, had taken a week with maybe one workout. So I kind of expected to be feeling okay for this long run. And just from the start, it was a slog. I was like, I have two and a half hours of this. I feel absolutely terrible. My Achilles hurts. Like, what am I doing here? None of my training has gone well. My workouts aren't going well. And so I basically had a breakdown in the middle of the run. I mean, you talk about emotional sort of variation, like mood swings. That's never happened to me before. And I just, yeah, felt really overwhelmed with running, just how bad everything hurt. And I just could not figure out why I would go out for runs. And, it, you know, it should be a 20-minute tempo. I'm running 30 seconds slower a mile. And I feel like I'm redlining to do it like giving everything i can to run 30 seconds a mile slower i have no idea where it's coming from because i at this point you know i've been putting in mileage post-limit blues doesn't seem to explain it and so it was like well whatever we're doing right now it's not enough to to change things around we need to take a different approach here uh at that point i had read an article in i think runner's world about jared ward dealing with thyroid stuff and a lot of the symptoms he was talking about like going out in a training and you know about 10 minutes in just cratering, just not being able to give any more. Like it seems like your body just kind of sucks all the energy out and you get rubber legs. 
when the actual volume itself shouldn't be anything. It's like, well, that sounds very similar to what I'm feeling. Maybe it's thyroid. Uh, and so that prompted us to get those tests for the levels. And then, well, my thyroid looked fine. Mm-hmm. And that's when we sought out Maddie. And I think too, um, too often this conversation, when a um, physician checks labs, you know, vitamin D, thyroid, what have you, um, oftentimes these things come back normal. And it's just kind of left at that. So I guess one of the interesting things here was it was like, I think it was the, the call from, from Lee that really like caught my attention. Because um, like, you know, I know Lee a little bit, but he doesn't really call me. So he's calling me on a Sunday. This is, I'm sure he has a good reason. Um, <laughs> so I'm like, all right, cool. Let's, let's, let's figure it out. Let's, let's get you in. And, um, and then, yeah, it was like, it was all of the stuff together started to like, kind of spin some wheels in my head this isn't this isn't just an iron deficiency this isn't just a vitamin d problem and i'm thinking back to like some of the research um there was a really great article in 2014 by um, van heest and colleagues which talked about some of the reduced responsiveness to training and sports performance now this was described in swimmers but um very prevalent in endurance running too where you keep putting in the effort, you keep putting in the volume, but you don't get the results back. And it's not for lack of effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the input s- starts not equaling the output. Um, and you guys are both like, you know, very elite runners. And I'm sure you know, like, if you do a few weeks of certain types of training, you're going to get to a certain place in fitness. And it sounds like there was a lot going on at that time, Jake, but like, um, certainly you are not moving in the right direction in, in fitness and um, kind of in retrospect, it's easy to see now, like, yeah, maybe kind of like bulldozing through some of those like subtle signs that, you know, we've been when talking about. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like, did you, um, I guess, like reflecting back on that, like now are there some like subtleties that you uh, like will pay attention to in the future in as you're like building back in training and, um, you know, like Maddie mentioned, like sleeplessness or, um, you know, like just any, any feelings like that, but sometimes people start to realize that like, oh yeah, like maybe I'm like, um, a little bit on the wrong end of, of the, of the, the spectrum in terms of fatigue or energy or something. I don't know. Is anything stand out that like you like that? I should have known it then. Well, I'm going to actually say, no, I don't think I'm the best judge. Mm-hmm. I think, and I, I think I see this a lot in, in runners in general. I'm probably just high level athletes overall is. Um, I kind of have prepared myself to grind. And so I, I, I have the expectation yeah. of like, whatever's coming up, I have to be able to get through it. So if training sucks for a little bit, I have to get through it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm going to put it like pain is not going to be the, the limiting factor here. So if my ankle hurts or whatever, like I'm going to train through it if I can. And you know, we have to balance that a little bit. Yeah. But I think pretty much across the board, any runner I talk to, you are going to err on the side of push through whatever it is. And so you see that with people like, you know, coach tells you to go out for an easy run and then you're running 545s on your, you know, your easy day. Yeah. And you, you got the instruction from the coast where you're like, well, it felt pretty easy to me and I would rather err on the side of too much than too little. Because, um, you know, we're all trying to like maximize as much as possible. I don't want to leave anything out. And so one of the things that I keep coming back to throughout my career is that I am not the best uh, judge of what I I need. Um, so I can certainly give feedback to coaches and I can tell like, Hey, this is how I'm responding. But, you know, I think Lee was a big part of why I was a little bit more uh, inclined to seek out help. Cause like Lee was very clearly worried about me. He's like, yeah, I didn't notice how much my mood had changed and how like I was getting snippy with teammates and stuff, 
but he had noticed it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've been overtrained in the past. And again, I'm not, I don't have a great perspective on it. So kind of what I've learned is I think I just need to seek out advice from people who really know what they're talking about. Cause it's, it's too many things for me to focus on and keep track of. So like when I come to my diet, like I'm going to not try to manage that myself. I go to Maddie and she gives me like a dietary plan and like at least give me some guidelines. Hey, these are numbers you hit. I'm very good at doing what I'm told. Uh, but when it comes to me prescribing for myself, I don't think I have the best perspective. Like were I to write my own workouts, I would almost certainly be overtrained. I would imagine. <laughs> um, you know, like I go to a physical therapist because I can't get the foam rolling per, you know, that's not enough to take to, to what I need. I need outside experts to help me. So um, I think more than just me monitoring my own warning signs, I certainly will be cognizant of that. But I also, I think I'll be, my plan is to be a little bit more open and um, communicative with sort of the, the different experts that I'm trying to surround myself with. Yeah, no, that's, that's brilliant. That's, um, yeah, relying on people that um, like get to know you and know what you need and are like just looking out for you um, and just having like, yeah, that different people in your, on, in your corner on your team. No, that's, I mean, I think that's like the, a great way to do it because there is like a different mindset for um, being a really high level athlete and like racing the things, the sk- mental skills that you need to race at a certain level versus like um, the skills that you need to train consistently for a long time. And like, I think those are two pretty different things. Um, and it's really hard to have both of them. And that's why you have yeah, coaches and dietitian, PT, strength coach. Like that's where you have this team to help you with, um, you know, like uh, make sure you have all those bases covered. So I think it's great. Yeah. That, this is pretty fascinating too. Cause like my experience with like, working with elite athletes is like part of what makes elite athletes special and continue to perform at an elite level is that hyper awareness of their body and their responsiveness to things. Um, but Retta seems to be one of these things that gets away from people. And I guess I want to ask Maddie, like what, what is, is, what, what, what are your thoughts on like your experience with working with people and their perception of um, the problem and their openness to the conversation? Yeah, I would say about maybe half of the athletes who come to me with Red S know that they have it on some level. They know they're struggling with their relationship with food. They know they've cut back on fueling or whatever to try to achieve a certain body composition or a certain goal. Um, And then I would say the other half that come to me have no idea that that's something they're struggling with. And I think like Jake said, where you have somebody on the outside helping you put together those puzzle pieces is a super, you know, useful tool that a lot of people don't access. And I mean, obviously I'm a little biased here because I am a dietitian, but I see a lot of people go to dietitians as a last resort. And, you know, whereas if you had something that's sore, you would go to a PT right away. Or if you had, you felt a little tired, you'd go to a physician and get some blood work done or, you know, whatever it is, it's the other professionals tend to be sought out earlier. And I think what Jake said is so important where you have somebody who understands the dietary piece. It's something that you don't have to think about you know, it's, it's not something that a lot of people have a lot of knowledge in. And then the problem too with that is we have, you know, TikTok, we have blogs, we have Instagram and people who aren't qualified giving just horrible advice. And then runners will say, well, I saw this pro runner do this. And so that's what I've been doing. And, you know, I can take one look at their Instagram and be like, this person's not feeling well, you should definitely not do what they're doing. And also, you know, understand that every athlete's going to be different. And so I think, kind of having somebody on the outside to help you understand 
okay, all these different things that you're experiencing that might seem totally unrelated are actually all related and a lot of times related to your approach to fueling and or training. So, um, you know, I'd say a big piece of that for me is just education for athletes and helping them learn maybe what their warning signs are and what they should be looking for, um, you know, kind of educating them on what a good approach is for them when it comes to fueling well. And then they know if they stray from that and then they also start experiencing symptoms, it's pretty easy for them to put one and two together and, and make those adjustments early on. And like, what are some of like the questions you ask for your male athletes? Yeah, I mean, I have a list. Um, anytime I have an athlete that's coming into me, I have a form that they always fill out. And there's a section where you can check all these boxes. And all the boxes are basically the different symptoms of red S. And so obviously you can have symptoms of red S and not have red S. So for example, GI issues is actually a really big one with red S, but a lot of runners experience GI issues for different reasons. So it's not just an isolated symptom that I look for. It's more of the combination of symptoms, how long those have been occurring, and then what I assess their intake to be compared to what their needs are. So there has to be a lot of different pieces present for me to really understand if red S is on the table for this athlete. Um, and so actually for my male and female athletes, I do ask the same questions. The only difference for male and female athletes, obviously, is menstrual cycle, um, which male athletes don't experience. Um, definitely ED or lower, like, you know, sex drive can be a big one with males that a lot of people don't talk about or don't know about. Um, and so that's something that, you know, if the athlete's comfortable talking about that, we can. But looking for some of those other symptoms and then any deficit can be enough for me to say, hey, I think this is where we might be. Um, let's make some adjustments and see how you're feeling in, in a few weeks. And if it is red ass, a lot of times, again, depending on how long they've been dealing with it, we see a pretty significant change in a lot of those areas that they first checked having issues with. And I guess, can you talk about some of the changes we implemented in this particular case? Yeah. So a big struggle with my marathoners is appetite suppression because they're training really hard. Um, and it's normal to have some degree of appetite suppression. And then red S can also further suppress your appetite. Low iron can suppress your appetite. So you have a lot of different factors that are kind of working against you when it comes to fueling well. So the biggest challenge is first just finding an approach that allows you to get those things in without necessarily feeling like you're constantly force feeding yourself. And it's pretty normal for athletes who are recovering from underfueling to have two to three weeks of really extreme discomfort where they feel uncomfortably full all the time. And that can be the hardest part to overcome because obviously it's not fun to eat when you're not feeling hungry. But then athletes who have any disordered eating, that can be a triggering feeling for them because they haven't experienced fullness in a long time. And so it's a new sensation, one that they maybe previously thought was a bad thing. Um, now they're feeling triggered and they're having to continue to, to basically force themselves to eat. So that's the hardest piece for a lot of athletes. So basically our strategy was just kind of coming up with what I call like safety meals where you can always eat them. They always sound good. Liquids is a really nice tool. Peanut butter, coming back to peanut butter. <laughs> um, some of those really high calorie foods is a great way to get more in without increasing the volume of the foods. So oils, you know, whole fat dairy, nut butter, avocado, that kind of stuff. It's a great way to add extras in. So normally it's making sure the meals themselves are balanced. So we're getting, you know, the carbs, the fat, the protein. Um, a lot of it is actually decreasing fiber. So a lot of athletes are shocked when I say eat less veggies, eat less fruits. 
Um, that fiber is really filling and takes up a lot of space in your stomach, but it's not giving you those nutrients that we need to correct red S. So a lot of times it's backing off fiber, replacing it with lower fiber, higher carb and protein options. Um, eating consistently was a big one that we worked on. So not going more than, depending on the athlete, somewhere between two to four hours without eating. Um, coming up with snack ideas, you know, helping build grocery lists, build, you know, weekly menu plans, that kind of stuff, just so that the athlete has what they need to be successful. And that was a big thing that Jake and I talked about during our sessions. And I don't know if you want to speak more to some of the changes you made specifically. Yeah, the eating more frequently was a big one. Yeah. Um, not going three hours. And, you know, I've been taking a bunch of downtime because I just had surgery on my Achilles, but that's one of the ones that I really need to make sure that I do. Because you talk about sort of habits. I don't particularly like making meals for myself, uh, and I'm, I'm not the best at keeping snacks in the house. And so, and I also, I, I do have a little bit of a myopic personality sometimes where I'll get really invested in a task and then look up and like four hours have gone by. Um, and so, like trying to set timers for myself, like reminders during the day, like, yeah, it's yeah, it's not lunchtime yet, but you need to be eating a snack. And so the, the office that I work at now, they have a break room with snacks. And so like, just... Just go in, get yourself a bag of chips and a thing of jerky and just eat it, even if you don't feel like it. And actually, you, you talked about warning signs before, and I, I said I didn't have any, but just made me think of it. Uh, the big thing I noticed when I started trying to properly fuel was I had always thought that I had a sweet tooth. Because like after every meal, I was like, i got to have something sweet or I don't feel like the meal's over. So I would always have like chocolate chips or something like that. And, you know, when I was trying to lose weight, like that was the main craving. I was like, no, 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 no. This is what we need to resist. So we stay away from sodas, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, But what I found as soon as I started eating more carbs was my dessert craving disappeared. Like, Mm. I don't care about dessert. Like, if I have a little bit of ice cream, like, that's great. I can can see that it tastes good. But I don't care if it's in the house. I don't pay attention to it at all. I don't seek it out. I don't want it. And so I think for me, that's, that's one of the things that I'll start to pay attention to. Like, if I start finishing a meal and think like, man, I just, I have to keep putting things in my mouth until I get that sugary snack. That I think was a big key for me because it was it was like night and day. As soon as I started eating six times a day, sugar craving went away completely. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, especially for marathon training, burning through a lot of fuel. Um, yeah, that's so true. Like I definitely have actually noticed the same thing. Like I, if I have a day where I don't eat enough throughout my workday or whatever, like I'm you know definitely craving carbs, but just like simple sugar carbs, like beer or ice cream or is like that's like when i get home like oh are there chips or is there beer or if i eat dinner like i just want ice cream afterwards and like yeah if i eat enough throughout the day like yeah, there's not those like sugary like dessert cravings or which or is not to say stay away from candy it's just like that's a warning sign if, yeah. if, if i feel if i've eaten to the point of feeling full uh-huh. but i still feel that like i just like i really really want that sugar um that to me was a big sign because yeah. now when i'm full I feel full and I'm, I feel satisfied. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the ability to achieve satiation without like those mm-hmm. real simple sugars, I think is, is a key for me. Maddie had mentioned, uh, I think you called it safe, safety food or safety plates. Yeah. <laughs> safety what were, did you have any, I guess you mentioned like the chips and the, the jerky, any other like things that you were like, when you're coming back, you're like, oh, this is my go-to, like, you know, if I'm not hungry, snacks around the house or whatever. Chips and salsa is a big one. Like I can, I can put away chips and salsa pretty easily. Mm -hmm. And that feels like a nice mix of of stuff. Um, Yeah. The the office that I work in, they have those like little single serving packets of jerky. So like baggage, like a single serving bag of chips and a bag of jerky. And then like maybe some fruit snacks or something afterwards Um, that like, 
does pretty good to get me between meals. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we talked a little bit kind of like about calorie numbers to kind of shoot for. And mm-hmm. again, we talk about it's it's not even so much not paying attention to calories because you're, you're trying to reduce them, but also I was very surprised at just how many I needed to get in. So like, I, I think I still need to kind of be reading packages, not because I'm trying to reduce calories, because I'm trying to hit enough. And so like actually being cognizant of just how hard it is to get in enough calories to fuel 115 mile training weeks for a four month block. Like it's, it's a lot. And it's a, it's a pretty intimidating amount when you kind of like lay it out on a plate and it's like, there's no way you could eat this in a single, or it would be uncomfortable to eat this in a single sitting. You kind of have to have those snacks just to get it in. You kind of have to seek out fruit juices and these other things. Cause otherwise it's, mm. it's a little bit uncomfortable. And so having talked with Maddie, like I would be surprised if I was ever really fueling properly. And, you know, most of the, like, since I kind of was a little bit more open with about this, um, a lot of, especially older runners have come to me and said like, yeah, I went through my, my, my like weight training phase where I got down like five pounds and I got two minutes slower and then I had to eat more. Like a lot of professional runners who were very, very successful have talked to me about this. I have probably had red S earlier in my career and not known it like training for the 2016 trials. I had a lot of similar symptoms, like mood swings, uh, lingering injuries is, is when we haven't really touched on. But like, I also had a lingering injury going into 2016 trials, tired all the time, uh, lack of competitive fire, um, you know, increased mileage without a, a commensurate increase in performance type of thing. I was almost certainly undertrained there and I was running even higher mileage. Like a lot of the runners I know have probably done a similar thing and not really known about it because, you know, it's, it's hard to get that much food. And sometimes, you know, if you're not really paying attention to it and thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I guess for Maddie, what what kind of timeline should an athlete expect or maybe not expect in terms of recovery? Yeah, that's always a tough one because it really depends on how long the athlete's been dealing with it and how severe their symptoms are. Um, a big question I get is, do I have to stop training to correct my red S? And you really don't, but keep in mind, again, if we go back to that scale analogy, the more you're training the more you're going to have to put back in. If that's already something you're struggling with, it's definitely going to make it harder for you to reach that goal. Um, So a big one is incorporating either a day off or a day or two of cross-training. That alone can really help correct red ass without having to stop training altogether. Um, You know, like Jake talked about earlier, when you get to that point in training where every run is miserable, then my question to the athlete is, well, why are we pushing through that? (laughs) You know, why don't we just take some time, you know, let's talk to the coach, let's take a little downtime, work on correcting that so that you don't burn out. I would say that's a big issue with red S, you burn out because running is hard and it feels terrible all the time. You feel terrible all the time. You're not happy. Um, And so that's a really big issue with a lot of runners. So I would say, you know, timeline again, it depends on how willing you are to back off of training. If you are willing to back off of training, that definitely helps correct it a lot more quickly. Um, if we catch it early, a lot of times we can correct it a lot faster. And if it's not a huge deficit, it's just a small deficit. Again, we can correct that even more quickly. So it, there's no timeline. I think that's the hardest part for athletes to understand is that we, you can't force your body to recover. I mean, you can't force yourself to get over an an injury or an illness, just the same that you can't force your body to get over red S and, you know, you can't force a timeline with your body, but if you know that you're doing all the things that you need to be doing to correct it, athletes will 100% of the time notice as soon as they turn a corner. Like they'll notice some pretty 
extreme and obvious differences. Like Jake said, it was pretty immediate where he noticed like cravings were going away. And a lot of times athletes will notice mood is stabilizing. They're sleeping way better. Um, you know, as long as we're seeing those markers of progress, then we know that we're doing what we need to be doing. Um, and again, it, it depends on how deep into it we are, but especially with like female athletes who've lost their cycle, um, there's no timeline for getting that back. It can take six months to a year. It can take less than that. It can take more than that. And same with, you know, male athletes recovering too. It can take three months, six months, a year more, depending on where you've been. Um, so I guess a complicated answer to your question, there's no timeline, which is hard, but if you're doing all those things, it will improve. Kind of curious, Maddie, and then both you guys, like your personal experience as like elite runners, like what, how can we differentiate like, um, someone who's like has subclinical red S maybe versus like you're just getting back into training and like, you know, that when you're building up, like you're not going to feel great for like a couple of weeks. You're going to be a little bit on the tired side. Your workouts aren't going to be great. They're not going to be flashy. You're going to, you know, it's kind of like you're, you're putting in the work, but like, you're not seeing like the results of that fitness yet. Um, is there like an acceptable timeline that you think we should be putting up with that Maddie, like as a, like in your professional opinion. And then like, yeah, I'm curious what you guys' personal thoughts are. Like how long do you guys let yourselves like feel like crap before you're like, okay, I need to like change something here. You know, is it a week? Is it a couple yeah. days? Is it two weeks? Is it a month? I don't know. Yeah. So I would say in my personal experience, there's always like after three weeks of solid training, you hit like a week or two where you're like, oh, this is kind of hard and I feel a little tired. Um, but then normally it like comes back up and I feel good again. Um, I would say in terms of differentiating that with red S is the other symptoms outside of training that we talked about. So, Mm. you know, even though like I had that little three week slump happen, it didn't last three weeks, but after three weeks of training, but I was still sleeping fine. I still outside of training, I was still feeling good and I was feeling normal. I wasn't dealing with soreness, you know, everything else like that was fine. So I would say as long as you're not also experiencing a change in sleep or mood or you know, other things like that that we've talked about, then it could likely just be due to absorbing training. But keep in mind too, for for you specifically, if it's been, you know, you've been training well for a few months and then all of a sudden it kind of hits you out of nowhere and it's really not improving after a week or two, that's when I would probably go back to the drawing board and say, okay, did I miss something with fueling? Did I change something with fueling? Or am I not sure what I'm doing with fueling? And that's when I would say you can reach out to a dietitian and we can help you either rule out that underfueling is a problem or catch it early if it is a problem and help you learn how to prevent that from happening down the road or correct that if it's been an issue. I have even less to really add to that just because like I'm looking at we have this little sheet in front of us that has warning signs, uh, maybe more subtle, and it's got recurring illness, injury, mood changes, disrupted sleep, decreased libido, performance plateau. Those are all also symptoms of like about the middle of a marathon segment. Like all of those are kind of things that I have noticed in myself as part of marathon segments that have gone very, very well. Yeah. So, but I think for me, the one that I would maybe pay attention to is, you know, within a buildup, you'll typically kind of have a slight decrease in training going into maybe your tune-up race, like a month to six weeks out. At least that's what how we do it. Like. Lee will kind of give a week where we will do like long run and then be kind of like a moderate workout instead of doing two workouts in a weekend leading into a race. And the idea here is to freshen up just a little bit, try and get a fast workout or, you know, a fast effort into legs and really try to perform, kind of see where you're at. And 
we did that before Boston going into, I think, the Gate River 15K, and there might have been one other in there. And that that dip in training volume did not make me feel any better. Like, the race went like crap, and then he also gave me a week after that of easier workouts, and I still felt like crap. Like, I did not respond to that time off at all. Like, I came back, workouts were no better, I was no fresher, still felt exhausted. And so, you know, if you're not responding to downtime, I think it seems like that might be kind of a, a warning flag for me. Yeah, and I think um, that the health consequences are really hard to tease apart, but the performance consequences of Red S are oftentimes pretty obvious. And that that's usually the ones um, like that I think at least catch catch the attention uh, of athletes the most, even though some of the other stuff may have been present for a lot longer. And um, one of the things you mentioned, I want to circle back to. Um, is the, the the risk of prolonged prolonged injury because this is this is something you tend to see with someone who's had this for a very long time. Um, this is like weeks to months to even possibly years of less than optimal fueling strategies, where we mostly think of these as bone stress injuries or stress fractures, and that's the obvious one that pops up. But the prolonged tendon injury, and I think um, <laughs> you can speak to that. And this is, and you even got a little bit of a curveball after Boston. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the coming out of, uh, the Olympic trials, I had, I think it started as hamstring pain and then it moved down into my left peroneal tendon, which is just the outside of your Achilles. So it's same area, um, similar movement that it contributes to. Um, and then it would kind of jump back and forth between those two. So I think I started seeing you at like late 2020 for the hamstring issue and the peroneal issue. And we just kept coming back and forth. We did saline injection. We did PRP, lots of therapy. It's like, oh, it's it's a foot mobility thing. If we get the foot mechanics right, we're going to do something. Oh, it, it's your labrum. Like, maybe we can do something in there. Let's get the hip capsule opened up. And it just was not getting better. And in fact, it was getting worse and worse and worse. Um, I, I got a surgery on the right side for Haglund's deformity back in 2017. I knew I had the Haglund's on the left side. But because it wasn't Achilles pain on the left side, I was like, well, maybe that's not what it is. We started thinking that might be the issue. So we started looking at the Haglund surgery. Uh, and so also going into Boston when the left Achilles was becoming more and more of a problem, we were starting to prepare for like, okay, post-Boston, we're going to take time off and we're going to actually do the Achilles surgery on the left. And then as part of the prep for that Achilles surgery on the left side, uh, took a look at the right just as a comparison and realized the Haglund's was coming back on the right side as well. So, um, yeah, coming after Boston, I got both Achilles done with the, the Haglund surgery, which on the one hand kind of sucked because it was just a, a hat on a hat in terms of injuries, but also like I had to spend two months on a couch uh, because I was in casts, which is a, a perfect opportunity to eat a bunch of carbs and dig yourself out of death. So I, I think <laughs> the fact that I was able to time those recoveries together, I think was very helpful. Uh, but certainly leading up to Boston, it was a very, very miserable time because my feet hurt and I was tired. And yeah, it was just, it was rough. Yeah, sometimes that that injury can be a blessing in disguise and that it gives you that time to recover because it seemed like you bounced back fairly quickly. So um, tell us about what recovery has been like. Yeah, uh, I it started off with a, a really nice upward trajectory. I was back on the Alter G, I think within six weeks of my right Achilles. That was the second one I had done. 
Um, I had to get them done a month apart. Um, so within six weeks of my second surgery, I was already back on the Alter G. I was increasing body weight 10% every week. Like I was starting to run. There were no back slips. So I, you know, I get a little stiff and sore kind of walking around. So I've been on running on solid ground for I think three weeks now. Um, and I've, I've plateaued a little bit. So there's, I still need to get some strength back in there just doing Achilles exercises and stuff. Um, it still feels like garbage. Uh, so yeah, just, just dogging around. I, I'm just kind of in that stage where you just kind of have to push through it. You talk about three weeks of just sort of feeling crappy. You'll eventually get the breakthrough. I haven't had that yet. And I think once I do, it'll be good. But, you know, just, just 30 minutes a day, two, three days in a row, take a day off, do some cross training. Um, it's that kind of return to running grind. Yeah. And this is a, you know, surgery you've been through one before. So you, you know, but it's like, this takes, you know, it takes a long time to get back to, you know, not just running, but like the type of running that you are wanting to do, which is, you know, 115 miles a week and two, you know, very high intensity workouts. Like I know the style of workouts that you guys do and yeah, like, you know, hilly long runs and mags and gold hill and all the, all the fun stuff. So it's, yeah, it, it, it's a long-term play. Um, but it is like, we were just talking about like you're, you're covering a lot of bases with everything. So you're, you're setting yourself up for, you know, years of success down the road um kipchoge's like 45 or something so you've got like you've got like a decade <laughs> i mean the goal is just injury free uh you know no mistakes ball through the 2024 trials is is the idea like we're not going to backslide anymore so my yeah my goal post boston because boston was i we we discovered the red ass i think about six weeks before yeah. boston mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. we had we had to have a conversation as to whether or not it was even worth it to run it um it probably wasn't it probably wasn't the best idea because like you know even if i had perfect like I just knew that I was not going to respond well. Um, but, you know, I had that that three-year period where I wasn't racing, trying to get over the Achilles before. And then it was kind of miraculous that I came back. To me, it was. Uh, and so I kind of have the mindset now of like, well, if there's a, a big experience in running that you want to have, take the shot when you have it. Because if this turns into something bigger, you might not get another shot again. And Boston has been a bucket list race for me for a long time. It's like, well, even if it goes poorly, uh, I still want to go out and do it. And... It started out poorly, like a, my my downhill, those, those first downhill miles, I was still struggling to run like 5.10. And I knew at 10K that like the race was over. I got dropped at the bottle stop and it was very clear that I was not going to get any faster and I was probably going to get a lot slower. So I think the last, it, it's pretty rough to have 32 kilometers in a, in a marathon left and knowing that it's only going to be getting worse. So the crowds got me through a little bit, but I was like walk jogging those last 10 miles and it Again, I probably should have dropped out, but I wanted to see Boylston Street, so I pushed through it. Um, and from then, it's like I I need to fix everything that went wrong in Boston. Like I I know that I have kind of a, a two and a half year window once all of this is taken care of um, to try to get everything fixed. I know that when I am on my game, um, I can beat anybody in the country, but I need to be on my game. Like you know, I'm not. I don't think I'm talented enough to beat some of the the young guys out there if if something is going wrong in my training so it was like we need to fix everything mm-hmm. uh and so that's that's the goal is to to come into this next year and a half two years and just like we're gonna do we're gonna do everything right we're gonna eat right we're gonna sleep right uh we're gonna train right and everything mm-hmm. yeah i'm thinking in terms of the rad ass recovery too that seemed to bounce back pretty quickly um and i, I should say it's a process so we're not like done but um I remember checking your ferritin vitamin D like the day of your second surgery and it bumped up like double what it was before um, just from rest and proper fueling. 
Um, not every athlete gets it that quickly, um, but it was really cool to see that. Um, and we didn't do anything different with vitamin D or ferritin. It was really just, I don't think, um, not much, just fueling. Yeah, well, rest. I mean, I was also taking, I, we switched the supplement up. I don't know well, if maybe, that was yeah. the necessary part of it. Um, but yeah, I, I had been taking, I think, regular ferritin, and now I'm on ferrous sulfate. Uh, and then we also bumped up the dosage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, I doubled the dosage of the vitamin D. So I can't remember how many milligrams I'm taking, but it's a lot. It's like 5,000 milligrams of vitamin D. Um, and about the same. All right, yeah. So we did change the supplementation a little bit and got a little more consistent with it. Um, but again, like I had been taking a good amount of iron before that. And it was a flat line over a six-month period of me taking regular iron supplements. No change in my iron. And then I started feeling properly. And yeah, we doubled in, I think, like a three or more four-month period. It's actually probably about time for me to get the levels checked again. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, I guess to, to that to that point, um, what I guess, Maddie, what do, you, what do you think the next steps are you know, for an athlete like this who's coming coming back now okay we've got the 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 injury um fixed surgically and um now we're starting to resume training i assume that the fueling piece is only just really beginning um what what happens next yeah i mean i think like jake said it's important to realize too that you're going to have this kind of rebound with body weight and body composition that's really normal for athletes to experience and that's really hard because like jake said you don't feel great and you don't feel like yourself when you get back into training. Um, But, you know, he hasn't been running 115 miles a week. So as he progresses back into training, his body composition naturally will shift. And that's the part of the process athletes need to learn to trust. Um, You know, maybe the goal race weight or whatever is, is totally different now, but it will still naturally change in response to training if you're fueling properly. You don't have to force it. Um, so the next step for a lot of athletes, once they've reached that recovery point with Red S, is getting them back to a point where training is feeling comfortable, they're feeling more comfortable in their body. Um, a lot of times their body has now, it's just different, and that's usually a good thing. I, a lot of athletes will be like, oh, I'm heavier than I've ever been, but I'm running faster than I've ever run. And you know, those are the athletes where we know it's probably been more of a chronic issue than it has been a temporary issue. Um, and so dealing with, you know, making sure that you're staying on top of fueling despite those body composition changes, which can be hard mentally to, you know, get yourself to continue to do that and just trusting the process and knowing that as soon as you're back into training, you know, the better you're fueling, the more consistent your training can be, the higher your volume can be, the heavier you can lift. And all those things are going to help you reach your goals as an athlete and also will naturally shift body composition. So making sure we're still on the right track with fueling, you know, getting back into things with running and making sure fueling's appropriately adjusting for that. Um, marathoners, obviously we have to start talking about fueling during training and there's, you know, the hydration piece and all that stuff. So a lot of it is just overall, are we fueling well enough to support our training at the baseline with minimal running? And if we are, then it's much easier to kind of build off that pyramid you know, we, I call it the base training phase of fueling. You have to have the basics down in order to build off of that as training changes and races get on the calendar. So um, maintenance, I guess, is basically the next piece <laughs> and then going from there. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, you guys both kind of like touched on it a little bit, but um, I mean, one of the big things, and uh, I think it's a lot more like talked about openly in females, like the way that like female runners like look or they're being whether they're too skinny or well like we comment on 
females a lot more than men i think in our society which is probably not good but um but guys i think especially distance runners there's definitely a culture of like oh that guy looks fit or um you know like oh like did you see so-and-so like you know like there's like certainly like um a culture of that um you know maybe definitely starting the college level for sure um and like we live in boulder like i just did a long run around the res you see like tons of other groups and then um yeah i think that there's something that like um people are like starting to realize like just because someone looks a certain way that has no correlation with how fast they are like i saw a ton of guys that looked fast at the at the running around the res today and i didn't recognize any of them so they couldn't have been that fast to be honest with you. so um yeah just like uh i think that in thank you for sharing your story like that's like the more times like we like talk about this and like younger people hear it um like yeah skinny does not equal fast and just because you look a certain way like you know doesn't like have any correlation to, to how fast you're on especially in the marathon um i think too but um oh i wanted to ask about um fueling like in like long runs and, and stuff is that something that you've done a lot of previously or is that like part of the, the plan to like you know make sure that you're like getting um you know all of the calories of morton or whatever you prefer um in in a long run because I, I think that's something that also like we've definitely been chronically like under fueling like most runners that are uh, that are our age like in long runs and stuff yeah i when we do so our, our my typical long run during a marathon buildup is about two and a half hours um and so during that time i will sometimes take some gels so my my go-to gel is roctane and it's not for any particular reason other than like i took it a few times and it worked um, I, I think I'm definitely one of the people that errs on the side of less. I just had early in my career, I had some bad experiences running where you get to like your third or fourth gel sort of later in the race and you just get that, that sloshy tummy feeling and everything feels kind of gross and you get that like greasy coating cause it's all like really simple sugars on your mouth and like, it's hard to get fluids down. Um, and I hated that feeling enough that I erred on the side of, I go for, basically zero, zero calorie fluids. So I do SOS is what I have been doing. Um, and then, you know, I may take, I think I take a gel right before my race and then one every, I think it's every 45 minutes during, it's, it's whatever on the package that shows how much I've thought about it. It's like, I just read the package and do that. And it worked for me. You, you did that in Chicago and in the trials? Yep. Yeah. And that's probably like, so Maddie and I haven't worked together for a while um, because I've been sort of in an in injury, you know, off of my injury, injury hermitage. Um, but now that I'm getting back into training, that is probably something we should dig into is, yeah, I can probably, I, I can almost certainly be tailoring it a little bit better. Um, you know, the other thing is I kind of, it worked once it will work again. I, I definitely had that mentality. Um, but the, 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 it worked once thing was for Chicago and the trials, which were both fall marathons. So a lot of my training was done in pretty crisp weather um, you know, it's, it's very, it's, I think it's, it's a lot less stress in your body. I don't think I realized just how much added stress it would happen when I was trying to heat acclimate for Tokyo. So even if I had not been completely under fueled, just adding in that extra bit of doing a few of my runs in long sleeves and like really trying to focus on heat. Like I did a heat training segment in, uh, Richmond, Virginia, where, you know, it's like 90% humidity that added stress is like, I was not taking that into account when I was thinking about fueling or rest or changing training volumes, right? This is, this is one of those reasons why you talk to a lot of other people. Cause like, I think had I talked to Maddie about that, she could have had come to me specifically with the perspective, like, Oh, you're doing this training in heat. We need to add a little bit to help you with that. 
which, you know, Lee was thinking about it from a, uh, like a, a training volume standpoint and Kabalios might've been thinking about it from like an injury standpoint or whatever, but they're all going to contribute into how you end up performing at the end of the day. And I, I wasn't focusing on that a whole lot. So it's, it's hard to keep track of all of those things at once. Yeah. And like you said, like we, like, um, as, as an individual, like it's really hard for you, but then like as, um, clinicians and practitioners, like none of us can be keeping track of that. Even like, you know, a really good coach, like, you have a very like experienced, like very knowledgeable coach that like knows what it takes to be a Olympian. Um, like it's hard to like keep track of all that stuff when there's, especially when it's changing from your normal uh, training environment and stuff like that. So, well, cool. I'm excited for you guys to play around with uh, some some fueling strategies. You'll feel a lot better on your uh, on your <laughs> long runs. That's the goal. Well, <laughs> actually, <laughs> yeah, I'll have to get used to it too because I'm not used to. Yeah, I don't like trying to put it in my body during and then. So, yeah. I mean, that's that's the reason you do it in practice is to try and get ready for it. Um, but I think it will certainly help. And actually, I did notice that at the Olympic trials because I was having some digestive issues at around 15 miles. And I was like, oh, boy, this next gel is going to suck. And it actually settled my stomach. So fueling can, can have a positive effect if you're feeling bad. <laughs> well, we definitely want to be respectful of your time here. And um, it's, there's a lot of great positive messages here that it seems like we're ending on. And thank you both for sharing this conversation in, in quite a bit of detail um, that I think will be valuable to, to our listeners. Um, so I guess we just want to close by asking you both, like, you know, where, what do you think we can do better as clinicians in this um, setting of Red S? And I guess what are like some take-home points you want to send to runners or other people listening to this? I would say for clinicians, anyone who works with athletes in general, I think just educating yourself is the best place to start. A lot of athletes that I've worked with who've had Red S coaches either didn't know that was a thing or didn't know how to connect the warning signs. And coaches especially see the athletes on a regular basis. And so I think if you're a coach, you know, educating yourself on what to look for in athletes who might be suffering with Red S. Um, and kind of figure out some resources in your area to refer these athletes to and kind of knowing when it's time for them to back off of training or be pulled from races and kind of send them to professionals before getting back into things because you're not doing that athlete a service by having them just kind of force themselves to train through it. Um, so I think a big piece of kind of what we're doing here, just talking about it, learning more about it and understanding it more. Um, and then I would say my takeaway for athletes, 100% of athletes that I've worked with who've had red S have always told me if I had known this was a thing, I'd never would have gone through this. Um, so that intentional piece, you know, that underfueling to try to achieve the body type of whatever, a marathon or 1500 runner, um, is never worth the long-term consequences or the battle to recovery from red S that you might experience for that one season or that one race that it actually pays off for. Um, and so learning how to do that from a healthy standpoint, you know, there's healthy ways to achieve goals without having to restrict or try to look like somebody else or do what somebody else is doing. And so if you're somebody who's struggling with that, there are professionals who can help, um, you know, reach out, don't be afraid to reach out. And um, there's people that can help give you that guidance. So you don't have to you know, learn from mistakes like a lot of other athletes are doing. I think it's so important for people like Jake to share their story because the more you learn about it and understand repercussions, the less likely athletes are to try to do that themselves. Yeah. Um, I, I'd come back 
to it with Lee. So I, I had trained with the Hanson's group for a long time. And Hanson's group is, is your, your classic marathon group of like, we go out and we grind, right? We're blue collar. We're putting in, I think going to the 2016 trials, I was putting in 135 mile weeks. And like, you know, you're doing your doubles regardless of how you're feeling. And it, I think it goes to the endurance athlete mentality in general. And then I think marathoners and ultra marathoners specifically of like, I need to be grinding. I need to be maximizing. And when I started working with Lee, the conversation became a little bit less about we are trying to reach this peak as more about we want to leave just a little bit on the table. We want to come in just a little bit undercooked because I think what gets lost in this conversation about maximizing is like it's not it's not a constant upward trajectory and sort of intellectually we know that um, but we still think like well if I just do five miles more a week then I will continue to see these these gains but you kind of forget that like it is a peak and in my experience the other side of that peak the the slope is a lot steeper so like once you have overtrained or you know gone over and whatever it is so in my case it was fueling like I was decreasing my fueling and then I decreased it like too much to the point where did not see any performance gains. In fact, I saw a significant performance lost. You see it with people like I put in 110 miles a week, this segment, next segment, I'm doing 120 and boy, are my results going to be great. And then all of a sudden their results crater. You do see that a lot. Um, it, it comes into different places in performance where you're trying to reach this, this, this max. And if you end up going over it, which is very easy to do when you're really trying to find that, that razor thin margin at the very, very top in a whole bunch of different areas, I think it becomes a lot harder to then pull back on the reins and still end up with a good performance as opposed to if you're just a little bit undercooked, there's something out there for you to gain on race day, possibly be fired up. I can say this from, you know, training through injury and, and also training through red S dealing with that, like sort of the, emotional and physical just grind of like every day I have to get up and I'm not thinking about how good I'm going to be at training. I'm thinking about just how much is this run going to suck? Just how much is my ankle going to hurt me today? You see people training through injuries for like years at a time and you're not going to get, you can't make anything special happen. Like you might be able to show up to the race and you might even be able to get good results, but you're never going to outperform your own expectations because so much of your emotional and physical energy is put into trying to overcome this other stuff. And so there is a significant benefit, I think, and I've, I keep learning this lesson, to coming in just a little bit undercooked and sort of having a little bit left in the tank and on the table. Because, yeah, once you once you go over that, that peak, it's just it's very hard to come back. And so thinking a little bit less in terms of it's always maximize and more about, like, let's find something that works. And then let's try to make something special happen on the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. No, thank you guys both. Um, yeah, certainly like a lot of these lessons are, are ones that you kind of have to learn the hard way, I think as a, as a runner and, uh, hopefully, uh, more and more and more people can learn from the people before them and like, don't fall into the same trap. Um, but it is, it is hard because, um, the mindset of to become a, a runner and what you get good results doing something and so like more is always better um but yeah i think just learning that like just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it and yeah like you were just saying jake like um keeping the big picture and the goal in mind of like what's you know what are we trying to get out of this not like sh can i just do more um, or can i restrict my diet or yeah whatnot so yeah thank you guys both that was really 
really helpful. Um, I definitely learned something, and um, I think for the uh, for the guys out there, like yeah, this uh, red S is uh, happens to us too, and uh, more subtle signs, and um, you can maybe get away with it in terms of like injuries and, and whatnot for a bit longer, but eventually it'll uh, catch up with you. So yeah, thank you guys both for for sharing your story, Jake, and uh, for your expertise, Maddie. Appreciate it. And when it does catch up, it sucks for a really, really long time. (laughs) So one thing I do sometimes worry about is people hear this story and they hear like, yes, he had two years of feeling absolutely miserable and running like crap, but he did make the Olympics. (laughs) And I think a lot of people out there would take that trade off. And the important thing is like, one, we don't know what would have happened had I been fueling myself properly. Like, I one thing I really do want to is try and get back to that level and then do it the right way and show that it's possible to do it in both ways. But like that is, that is, that is not a a trade-off that it's worth making. Like the, how poorly I was running afterwards was not worth how well I ran that one time. Yeah. And at the very beginning, like I um, mentioned, like I had looked back at your history and like um, that little change before the trials or not little change, but like that um, there's no way that that accounts or even like comes close like maybe that was like a call it a half percent versus like the 99.5 percent of of the training that you've done through college and through the eight years before that as a professional runner like there's um you know you know fractions of pennies on the dollar were gained versus like all of this um that you've had to deal with afterwards also performance coming after a significant amount of downtime after an injury and probably under fueled period like Mm-hmm. Had I continued to try to train after the 2016 trials, when I think I had a lot of the same symptoms, like mm-hmm. when I finished 2016 track trials, like I was done running. I did not want to like go mm-hmm. out and run. I was exhausted. I was hurt. It sucked. Mm-hmm. And then I took time off. And so I think part of the thing that contributed to my 2019, 2020 success was like, I got everything right again. Right. I, like, I got those levels back up. I had a bank to withdraw from. Mm-hmm. And then I just went and pulled it all out again (laughs) like yeah that i had something to draw on it wasn't like i had been training consistently before that i had to get back up to that level too Mm. yeah yeah well the story is definitely not over and we're excited to see um where things go for you from here so i think the best we can do here is you know kind of keep in mind this 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 definitely takes more than one person it takes it takes a whole village and um you know we just want to be there to recognize these things early and make sure that we support our athletes um, with the best education possible so thank you both thank you thank you